freedom fighters, freedom lovers, and those who just want stuff for free, greetings and hello, it is I, your favorite obscure social studies teacher, who always subscribes to the adage, be a thinker, not a stinker, Mr. Palumbo, and this is the Professor Liberty Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Now I have to come clean and remind everyone that the thinker, not a stinker comment, that's not from me, I can't take that. That comes from the indomitable character Apollo Creed in the classic motion picture Rocky. Probably one of my all-time favorite movies, by the way. If you'd like to email the show, the email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. That's ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Send me your thoughts, your feelings, your ideas, your comments, your strategies, your philosophies, whatever. Send them to Professor Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Facebook Messenger, as many of you like to do. And don't forget, I, a lot of times you guys send me things, articles, thoughts, uh, ideas, and those end up being uh, the foundation, the germ, if you will, that turns into a Professor Liberty podcast episode. Well, summer is upon us. Let us sit back and take a deep breath. We have survived another trek through the modern hellscape known as public education. Anyone listening to this who's an educator knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, as society continues to crumble around us, it seems more and more demands are placed on teachers and police officers, to keep everything afloat. Of course, blame and responsibility should be placed on parents and individuals, but we don't do that anymore, at least not in the West, not in the United States. No, we are deathly afraid of anything having to do with accountability. We tell ourselves that all the things that have happened to us is due to our skin color and our gender, and of course, this is a lie. Now, obviously, some trials and tribulations come from seemingly no reason, nothing we've done on our part. But anybody of a mature persuasion, anybody of a certain age knows that most of the things that happen to us is a direct result of our own actions and our own decisions. You know, I posted on Facebook just a few days ago, no, it's not because the color of your skin It's because you're a jerk. And I have so many kids at school that treat everyone around them terribly. And then as soon as someone pushes back a little and and calls them to account for their terrible attitude, oh my gosh, the racism, the oppression. But you know what? I'm just going to say it. I wholeheartedly believe that very few people care about race and gender today. Most people will treat you kind if you are also, get, wait for it, kind. Most people will be polite if you're also polite. This is called the law of reciprocity. Look it up. Anyways, back to my original point. The world is crumbling. The elected leaders, instead of fixing the problems, are, you know, kicking the can down the road or placing more of the burden on public servants like police and teachers. We're left holding the bag. Instead of disciplining the child, 
who is causing chaos and disruption in the classroom. And soon that same child will be an agent of chaos and disruption in society at large. I'm thinking about subways at the moment. Instead of disciplining that individual, the powers that be require more training from teachers and police, more sensitivity training, more multicultural training, more training on mental illness, more training on blah, 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 blah. No wonder there's a national teacher shortage in this country. So needless to say, I'm excited to have a few months off. I know some of you guys out there that aren't educators, you, 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 you kind of hate a little bit. Let's just, let's just be honest. You're kind of you kind of hating on us, you know, teachers get two months off. But those same people, every time I meet somebody, those same people will say, you're a teacher. I don't know how you do it. I could never do that job. You know, how many people follow that statement once you find out, you tell them what you do? I could never do that job. So at least there's some acknowledging that being an educator in the 21st century is not this luxurious occupation, like maybe pilot. I should have been a pilot. And that is a good segue into the show today. Today, I wanted to dive into something kind of fun and interesting, and I have no idea how this topic got into my brain. Today's episode is called The Aircraft of World War II. And to be honest, I wanted to do something about this topic because outside of what I usually teach in class and what outside of what I normally study about World War II, I don't really know much about aviation and aircraft. So writing this episode was a journey for me, and I hope you will find it interesting as well. What I'd like to do is... I still want to take this through a certain narrative as if you were reading your textbook, okay? So if we were reading about World War II, you're going to have the invasion of Poland, you're going to have the Blitzkrieg, you're going to have the Battle of Britain, so on and so on and so on, right? So I kind of wanted to take that line of approach, and I wanted to take four nations, four countries, and I wanted to talk about... Uh, specific aircraft in those countries. Now, I could say most popular aircraft, or I could say most influential, but I don't want to be a stickler here. Like I said, I want to kind of just, if you were reading about history, these are the aircraft you would most certainly uh, be exposed to. Because let's face it, every country had multiple different kinds of aircraft. So we can't really, uh, we can't talk about them all. I find it fascinating that here on the Professor Liberty podcast, we've talked about aviation quite a bit. You know, me being a Navy guy, you think we'd have some uh, episodes on ships and warships. But no, we've had several uh, episodes talking about aviation. You got episode 41, Amelia Earhart. You got episode 37, the Berlin Airlift. We've discussed the infamous World War I ace, the Red Baron, in episode 28. And so what I think this does show is just how important aviation was to both world wars. And so since this podcast has talked about World War I and World War II, needless to say, aviation has come to the forefront. The speed at which aviation advanced is mind-blowing, and we've talked about this. From a few-second flight in 1903 to traveling to the moon and back in 1969, that's how fast aviation uh, progressed, the technology of flight. And 
even when we're talking about the war, World War II, you can see how airframes, aircraft that started early in the war are going to become obsolete by the end of the war because technology kept improving. I'm convinced that if we listed the most important inventions of the 20th century or, or like the last 100 years, aviation would be top five along with things like electricity and the telephone. Uh, Mr. Plumbo, uh, excuse me, Mr. Plumbo, uh, we didn't uh, invent electricity. Uh, yes, 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 yes. I know we didn't invent it. We learned how to harness it. Okay, now go back to your TikTok videos. All right, so the first nation we're going to start with is Germany. When discussing German aircraft during World War II, you're going to talk about the Ju-87 Stuka. It was also called the Junker, or the I know German, the J is a Y, so the Junker. Uh, the Stuka has to be part of this conversation. This is probably the, the plane that was easiest to uh, put into our list today. The Stuka was an integral part of the German Blitzkrieg, also known as Lightning War. The Stuka was first used in the Spanish Civil War and later during the invasion of Poland and France. It would dive at steep angles and it would have these things called dive brakes, which I'm assuming increased wind resistance, which would allow the pilot more time for aiming to drop his bombs. For psychological effect, wind sirens, which were known as the Jericho trumpets, created a menacing sound during the aircraft's dives, which would strike fear into the hearts of the people below. As the war progressed, the Stuka's slow speed of just 110 miles per hour would render her no match for other aircraft, such as the British Spitfire, which we'll discuss later. The Stuka was refitted many times during the war, but it never achieved the success and reputation she once gained early during Germany's march through Poland and France. Another German aircraft that I want to mention before we move on to another country is the Messerschmitt BF-109, Germany's most produced aircraft. Approximately 34,000 BF-109s were built. Coincidentally, this is why the 109 was chosen over more superior aircraft like the Hinkle HE-112. Test pilots gave that craft way better marks overall. The 109 was selected because the Germans could make more of them. It was the quantity over quality approach. So even though most German pilots gave conflicting, lukewarm assessments on the performance of the 109, the bottom line was the aircraft was easy to build and maintain. In fact, as the war raged on and on and better German fighters came online, the 109's ease to build and maintain kept it in the war till the very end. Okay, let's talk about Great Britain. Some say that the single most important airframe for the British during the war, especially during the Battle of Britain, was the Supermarine Spitfire, or Spitfire for short. The Spitfire was sleek, fast, and maneuverable, often getting the better of its nemesis, the BF-109 that we just discussed. 
The airframe was so highly adaptable, allowing for customizations and expansions and greater armament and firepower. Just like the BF-109 for the Germans, the Spitfire was the most produced aircraft and stayed in production until the end of the war. It had a maximum speed of 362 miles per hour. Its maximum diving speed was 450 miles per hour. It had an initial climbing rate of 2,500 feet a minute, and it took 9.4 minutes to climb to 20,000 feet. It had a combat range of 395 miles. As I just mentioned, many historians credit the Spitfire with keeping Great Britain in the war and winning the Battle of Britain. Now, the Battle of Britain was the first all-air combat battle. Now, I have to mention another aircraft here, okay? That is the Hawker Hurricane. Now, in June 1940, half of all fighting squadrons in Britain had these hurricanes. As the German Luftwaffe attempted to gain air superiority over the Royal Air Force, the Spitfire became the symbol of British defiance. But it's interesting because regarding kills, it wasn't the Spitfire that recorded the most victories, but this Hawker Hurricane. The two aircraft worked together, with the Spitfire intercepting German fighters, leaving the Hurricanes able to go after the German bombers. But it was the high-altitude performance of the Spitfire that gave the British the margin of victory needed to survive. All right, let's talk about the good old U.S. of A. As I researched for this episode, it was difficult to choose which American aircraft to discuss. Now, you got to remember, the United States is somewhat of an isolated country uh, during World War II, right? We still got those two great oceans keeping us safe, and we have a huge industrial base. So the United States had multiple aircraft designs, multiple airframes. Uh, so it's really hard to figure out which ones to talk about. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about the P-51 Mustang because that's my favorite aircraft of World War II. I mean, it is the sexy pick. It is a, it's a cool airplane. I mean, it's just awesome. But another aircraft kept creeping in as I was researching this and messing up my plans, and I'll mention it in a minute. So I didn't want to do the P-51. And then being a Navy guy, I wanted to talk about the Grumman F-6 Hellcat, which that replaced the uh, Corsair on aircraft carriers. And the, that's the one with the folded wings and, you know, the Hellcat's cool. But the Hellcat is slow. And, and like the P-51, it comes later in the war. Look, the P-51 is the celebrity, okay? The P-51 is the rock star. If you study, uh, especially like the Tuskegee Airmen with the red fin, the red tail, those were P-51s. So I wanted to go a different route. You know, learning is about going in different directions, going in different areas that you're not familiar with. You know, the P-51 is kind of like the Spitfire where it overshadows other uh, aircraft, did you know, by the way, fun fact, the Ford Motor Company named its popular Mustang sports car after the P-51. So this uh, aircraft that kept bugging me and kept coming up in my research was the Republic P-47 Thunderbolt. 
The P-47 served as the backbone of the Army Air Corps during most of World War II. And I never heard of it before. It was known as the Jug. The P-47 was an all-purpose aircraft that could be used for escorting or bombing. The Thunderbolt had a maximum altitude of 30,000 feet, and it had travel range of 900 nautical miles. It had a maximum speed of 425 miles per hour. The Thunderbolt could be armed with eight 12.7-millimeter M2 Browning machine guns with 3,400 rounds per gun. The most common perception of the P-47 was just how durable it was. German pilots would marvel at just how much lead the P-47 could take before it would go down. American pilots would share stories of the sounds of bullets hitting the back of their pilot seat. I read one account of a P-47 main engine shutting down during high altitude. And then the turbocharger was hit by a 20-millimeter shell from that PF-109 we talked about, that German plane. Despite all that damage, the Thunderbolt pilot was able to outmaneuver the German aircraft, restart its engine at lower altitude, and get away. It is said that P-47 pilots thanked God and then thanked Republic for building the P-47. Just over 15,000 P-47s were built during World War II. Okay, I don't want this to become an episode entirely on American aircraft, which uh, I can definitely do. So I'm going to stop here, but I do want to mention, and maybe this aircraft needs its own episode, I do want to mention the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress. Any discussion of World War II, especially the war in the Pacific, and the dropping of atomic bombs on Japan, you cannot have that discussion without talking about this particular aircraft. So if you're interested in that, check out Boeing B-29 Super Fortress. Okay, lastly, with kind of an interesting segue, because we were just talking about dropping bombs on Japan, let's talk about the Japanese. Again, like other nations, Japan had many different aircraft in operation during World War II. But I want to talk about the Mitsubishi A6M-0, or the Zero as it was called for short. The Zero was a carrier-based aircraft, and it first saw action in 1939, and it quickly gained a reputation as a formidable dogfighter. At one point early in the war, the Zero racked up a kill ratio of 12 to 1, meaning it shot down 12 enemy aircraft for every one of their craft lost. But by the end of the war, the Allied aircraft had caught up to the Zero in both maneuverability and firepower, and eventually rendered the Zero obsolete. The Zero gets its name from being a, quote, Type Zero fighter. The 6 in the A6M means it was the 6th model to be tested. The Zero had a maximum speed of 288 knots or 331 miles per hour. And it had a cruising speed of, eight, of 180 knots or 207 miles per hour. For anybody familiar with World War II, especially the challenges facing the Japanese, you would know that the resources, the war resources were always at a premium with Japan. I've told my students in the past 
that the Japanese were the Confederates of World War II. What does that mean? It means, just like the Confederates of the American Civil War, the Japanese constantly suffered from fixed or very low amounts of war resources. Men, food, steel, oil, etc. So with every victory, and certainly with every defeat, it was costly. The Japanese Imperial Air Force was not immune to this constant challenge. So as the war raged on and Japan lost veteran pilots, the quality of the dogfighting also decreased. This gave allies a more of an upper hand, even when going up against the Zero and inferior uh, aircraft. Eventually, towards the end of the war, as Japan became more desperate, it was the Zero that turned into the kamikaze fighter. And as we've seen with uh, Germany and with Britain, uh, the Zero is going to maintain its prominence even with better aircraft available because of the, uh, you know, the ease of production and maintenance. So it seems like many countries during World War II took the quantity over quality approach. About just under 11,000 Zeros were built during the war, and even though there are several dozen Zeros still in existence today, there's only a handful that are still airworthy. Uh, and I do not think, I tried to find, I couldn't find an answer on this, I don't think there is one zero in original condition in existence today. <laughs> Maybe at the bottom of the Pacific, but most zeros uh, that are repurposed, that are restored, have various parts from other planes, uh, machined parts, uh, so you can see zeros at aviation museums all over the world, but there is not an original zero left in existence today. Well, there you have it, folks. Aircraft of World War II. I thought it'd be nice uh, for the theme to have the Air Force song playing for the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope it sparked some curiosity. Uh, you aviation uh, masters out there, you aviation uh, junkies out there, please be gracious to me. I may, I may have gotten some terms wrong. I may have gotten some statistics wrong. Please don't shoot me. I'm just trying to spread a little information out there uh, for the greater masses. If you'd like to email the show, the email is professorliberty1776 at gmail.com. Please go to Facebook and give me a like and give me a follow. If you want to support me financially, go to teacherspayteachers.com and you can buy worksheets and assignments and lessons for your homeschool or your classroom. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty.